Picture, if you will, an apple. It's red or green. It's crunchy and juicy. It's a very nice apple. And that apple has a market value. Now, picture a change in the world that results in everyone deciding that apples should be free. In that scenario, what happens to the people who plant and grow and harvest the apples? They still have a product, but they can't get paid in the way they used to. Now, picture that that apple is in demand everywhere. Every time you turn on your TV and see a commercial, there's that apple. When you download an app for your phone, there's that apple. In the movies, in video games, in restaurants, there's that apple. In 2015, the music business is kind of like this. Everyone wants to use music because music sets moods. It creates emotions. It makes people want to dance. In other words, it has value. Yet the marketplace says it's free. This is the dilemma that people who make music find themselves in today. It still costs the same to record and press and promote an album, yet we can't sell this product like we used to. So those of us who produce the music, the artists and labels, have to wonder how long we can keep this up. Is there a future in music or what? Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Did you know that when you hear your favorite song on the radio, the band playing it does not get paid for that performance? Chances are you didn't, because in almost every other country in the world, musicians do get paid when their songs are played on the radio, and this is called a performance royalty. In fact, the U.S. is amongst only a handful of countries, like Iran, China, and North Korea, who do not pay a performance royalty for terrestrial or AM-FM radio. We do, however, pay songwriters, which is great for artists who write their own songs. However, for the thousands of performers who don't write their songs, amongst them household names like Frank Sinatra, Aretha Franklin, and Whitney Houston, they just simply don't get paid. On April 13th, Representative Gerald Nadler of New York introduced H.R. 1733, the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act, along with three colleagues. This act would create a performance right for terrestrial radio for the first time. Representative Gerald Nadler, welcome to the future of what? Glad to be here. So please tell us, why did you decide to introduce this act at this time? Well, I've been working on it for a year or two. It's, uh, it's just a gross unfairness. And of course, the uh, justification for it, so-called, which is that uh, artists... Uh, singers are, are compensated, in effect, by getting exposure and uh, promotion so that they can sell more albums. doesn't make any sense today for two reasons. Number one, because albums are going out of style. People aren't buying albums anymore. Right. Um, so that there's no compensation. And, and second of all, we live in a capitalist society. And a capitalist society is totally anomalous. Uh, and I can find it in no other instance where someone is heard to say, we want your, your service, and your compensation will be determined entirely by us, and you have nothing to say about it, and we think your compensation is the exposure or whatever. Right. In, a, in, a, in, in our society, um, you have to agree. Now, you may not have a lot of leverage. If you're trying to work at McDonald's, you, can't, I mean, you can withhold your labor uh, if you don't like the wage, and we try to deal with that through unions and minimum wages and so forth, but the fact is they can't dictate it to you. Right, of course. And here they can, and that's ridiculous. Right. 
One of the many benefits to creating a performance right for terrestrial radio is that it would bring in a bunch of taxable income for artists from foreign countries in the form of reciprocity. Can you talk to that? Well, sure. Something like 70 countries, including the entire European Union, have uh, performance rights for artists, and but they have reciprocity, which means, no, to have performance rights means if, 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 if I play your song on my radio station, I've got to pay you a royalty. I have to pay the songwriter, but I have to pay the artist a royalty too. Now, and that, that is the law in Europe and in oh, 70 countries. But they have reciprocity, which means that if a song uh, that is sung by an American is played in Europe, then they will uh, uh, compensate the, the, the artist. But only if we have the same benefit for, arti- for European artists whose uh, songs are played here. We do not have such a law. Therefore, an American song can be played uh, in, uh, many, many times in Europe or in other countries, and the American artists won't get paid. Correct. And, and of course, we would change that, obviously, by establishing the same right here as exists in Europe and other places and establishing reciprocity. Right. And since the U.S. is... That would be about $100 million a year in royalties for Americans when their songs are played abroad. That's amazing. Because we're a net exporter of culture here. I mean, most... You we know, are a very, a very large net exporter of culture. So one of our, our major uh, exports. Um, and for this segment, we get no compensation, no, no money at all. We... We export it for free, which is not the most intelligent thing to do. The main opponents of this act are the National Association of Broadcasters representing Clear Channel and other big radio corporations. Their argument is that this is a tax on radio stations and will create an undue burden for small stations. Can you explain how the act addresses this? Those are two arguments, and they're both ridiculous. (laughs) One, compensating someone, paying him, is not a tax. Uh, A tax is what you pay the government compulsorily. Paying an employee or paying uh, a royalty or a copyright is not a tax. That's just a, a calumny. It's just not, not true. It's a commercial arrangement. If you do some work for me and I have to pay you, you're not taxing me. I'm paying you, uh, number one. Number two, um, we specifically put in to the bill uh, that stations with less than a million dollars in annual revenue would pay a grand total royalty of $500 per year. And non-commercial public radio stations and college radio stations would pay a grand total of $100 a year. So that's not going to be a hardship on small or local radio stations. The creation of a performance right for internet radio play back in 1998 has probably helped push the notion of a terrestrial performance right, since now organizations like Pandora have started to complain that it's not fair that they have to pay a her performance right when terrestrial radio doesn't. Well, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's fair, and it's a, it's a good criticism. I mean, the fact of the matter is uh, Pandora has a point. If you're in your car and you decide you want to hear a certain song, there are three different buttons you can push or levers you can turn or whatever. <laughs> one is you'll hear it, and if you hit button number one, you'll hear the song over terrestrial radio, and there will be no compensation to the singer. Uh, button, button number two, you'll hear the song over uh, satellite radio. There will be compensation to the singer below market. Button number three, uh, it'll be streaming, uh, Pandora or whatever, and there will be compensation to the uh, uh, to the singer 
at fair market rate, willing buyer, willing seller rate. So it makes no sense at all that which uh, technology you use determines the compensation, uh, determines whether or not the artist gets compensated, and determines the rate of compensation. So this bill uh, uh, not only establishes the terrestrial performance right so that you get paid, so this artist gets paid for pre, uh, uh, not for pre, for, for, for terrestrial radio, but it also establishes rate parity between streaming and uh, satellite radio. And Pandora, organizations like Pandora would no longer be at a competitive advantage. Uh, com- I'm sorry. Organizations like Pandora would no longer be at a competitive disadvantage uh, with um, with older uh, with older organizations such as Sirius Radio or whatever. Right. So on May 15th, the act was referred to the Subcommittee on Courts, Intellectual Property, and the Internet. Can you yes. tell us what the next steps are? Well, I am the ranking Democrat on that subcommittee. Um, the next step is we're gathering co-sponsors and gathering support, and we have, we're going to wait and see what the chairman of the committee, Bob Goodlatte, does. He is uh, uh, Chairman Goodlatte has held a series of 20 hearings, or the committee under his guidance has held a series of 20 meetings, uh, 20 hearings rather, on the copyright law, all different aspects of it. And this is obviously one aspect. Music licensing is one aspect of the copyright law. Um, and the, the, the next question we have to decide probably later in the year is whether the bill that I've introduced will be considered as a standalone bill or whether it will be put into as part of a general overall a copyright reform rewrite of the law that, that Goodlatte will be developing. We don't know that yet. I don't know the chairman's intention. I don't know that he knows it yet. But that's the next step, really. And how do you feel just yourself personally? Do you feel like there, the wind is blowing in a positive direction right now for this? I think it is blowing in a positive direction for several reasons. Number one, uh, because people are understanding more and more that the excuse that you're compensated by promotion makes no sense in an era when people aren't, when, when you don't make your money by selling albums anymore. I mean, it's, it's just going by the board. It, it's the, the whole the whole. Uh, a paradigm of how musicians and, and radio stations and um, not radio stations but labels and so forth make money is changing. It's not through sales of physical things like albums or even CDs anymore. It's access to listening. Um, uh, so in that context, there is no other con- there is no compensation really. Uh, number one. Number two, uh, people are getting to understand it makes no sense that depending which technology you use, it used to be there was only one technology. Now there are basically three different technologies and three different compensation uh, schemes, and that makes no sense. Um, and so I think that uh, there is a growing consciousness that these laws, which were adopted at different, par- at different times uh, under the impetus of a new technology at that time, a new technology for radio in the 1920s and so forth, um, that we ought to unify it, that we ought to make them make sense. Gerald Nadler represents New York's 10th district in the U.S. House of Representatives. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us on The Future of What, and thanks for everything you're doing in Congress. Well, thank you, and you're quite welcome. I'm Portia Sabin. We continue talking radio royalties in just a minute. Stay with us. Maybe I'll sleep too long or sometimes I'll sleep too long.
Ted Kalo is the executive director of the Music First Coalition. Ted, welcome to the future of what? Thanks, Portia. Glad to be here. So to get started, please explain for everyone what the Music First Coalition is. So the Music First Coalition is a coalition of uh, independent and major record labels and groups re- representing recording artists like the Grammys, SAG-AFTRA, the American Federation of Musicians, as well as Sound Exchange, which is the entity that collects and distributes digital royalties to musicians and record labels. And we were founded on the principle that everyone who creates music should receive fair pay for their work, regardless of what platform it's uh, played on. So how long have you guys been working to get a performance right for musicians? So uh, the effort to get a performance right on AM-FM radio has been going on for a long time. Uh, uh, You know, in the 80s, uh, Frank Sinatra wrote a letter to Congress uh, on the issue. But really, the legislative effort in earnest began in 2007 uh, and culminated in the bill actually passing both the House and Senate Judiciary Committees uh, in 2010 by broad bipartisan margins. Uh, unfortunately, the clock ran out on that Congress and the bill died at the end of the Congress. And as I'm sure we're about to discuss, we're reengaging in the effort in a big, big way now. Yes. And before we get into that, I wanted to ask you so that our audience understands, uh, can you tell us the historical reason why there is not a performance right in the U.S.? Well, so when uh, Congress was first looking at 
royalties for um, for for sound recordings and and for music there there weren't really performances there were player pianos and 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 things like that and sheet music in the early 1900s and then uh performances began in radio stations with people actually going to perform uh songs and that was uh considered of a you know promotional value to the uh acts uh touring and and playing in radio stations uh over time uh whatever promotional value uh terrestrial radio amfm radio has to uh performers and uh copyright owners has diminished people are moving from a economy in which they buy music where so obviously they are listening to music through internet radio services satellite radio services and on amfm radio uh the whatever amfm radio was promoting sales clearly no longer exists in any significant numbers so now the only answer to why there isn't an AMFM performance right is that uh the big broadcasting companies like Clear Channel iHeartRadio have enormous special interest lobbying power in Washington and that's why that loophole persists. And of course to that point we just got off the phone with Representative Gerald Nadler of New York who introduced HR th- uh, 1733 the Fair Play Fair Pay Act. So this is a really big deal. Uh it's a bipartisan bill. Um it uh was introduced uh in April with a lot of r- really well-known uh musicians uh, to your audience I'm sure people like Elvis Costello, Marshall Crenshaw, you know, uh really pioneers in the world of uh independent and alternative music. Um and uh what the bill would do is it's pretty it's pretty simple it's not complicated it just says that uh, no matter what the radio platform if it's internet radio satellite radio or am fm radio the person who performs it the music and the and the copyright owner should get fair market pay for the work just like everyone else gets fair market pay for their work and it would establish an AMFM performance right and cease the idea of AMFM radio being the only entity that doesn't pay anything to performers and copyright owners for airplay. The congressman was speaking to that because I brought up the topic of Pandora and other internet radio providers being kind of annoyed at this point because they feel like, well, wait a second, we pay a performance royalty. Why is it that terrestrial radio gets to get away with not? Right. I mean, so uh you know, these uh internet radio companies r- rightfully point out that it's unfair that, you know, they exist and compete alongside even more frequently in your uh car stereo with the same you can have your Pandora app running through your smartphone or or turn to Sirius XM or AM FM radio and it makes no sense that internet radio pays and AM/FM radio doesn't. Now, in the past, the prescription that those internet radio entities have had for the problem has been uh, not great. Uh, they <laughs> said we should we should pay less because they don't pay anything, and we've stood for the principle that we shouldn't have a race for the bottom to the <laughs> bottom when it comes to how music creators are paid. That 
We should have fair market pay across all radio platforms. And the most innovative services that listeners want the most will survive under that system. But we really shouldn't have a system that props up old uh, models and and gives them unfair advantages against uh, newer innovative models. Right. And of course, I I will show my own bias here. But to me, it seems absurd that a multi-billion dollar corporation that makes its its living using music as it's the thing that draws in its listeners will say we can't afford to pay royalties to the artists. Well, so yeah, you, these are what, what we're talking about here are the biggest radio conglomerates. I mean, let's let me talk more specifically about what the bill says, and I'm, I, I would bet bet Mr. Nadler went into this, but. The bill says for AMFM radio stations that have annual revenues under a million dollars, for the commercial ones, they only pay a $500 flat fee. Uh, for non-commercial public radio stations, listener-supported stations, they only pay a $100 flat fee a year. It's the stations that have annual revenues of a million dollars or more that would pay fair market value. These are multi-billion dollar conglomerates that the only product that they're selling their ad time around is music, and they refuse to pay for it. You don't see you know, Netflix claiming that it's promoting movie stars' careers and that they don't have to pay for the movies that they play. I mean, this wouldn't fly anywhere else, and it makes no sense, and the time has really come for it to change. Absolutely. I feel like it's an accident of history that put us in this situation. And now, of course, nobody likes it when their industry changes, but this is a change that whose time has really come. Yeah. I, you know, uh, I understand that these big multi-billion dollar companies don't want to pay for music, but that doesn't make it right or fair, nor does the argument that it's always been this way make something just or right. So from your perspective, living in D.C. And, and being on the Hill, how is it looking right now with this Republican Congress? Do you do you feel like the wind is blowing in a positive direction for this bill? So it, it's counterintuitive. Uh, the, the, some of the biggest things in the area of copyright and music licensing happen when you've kind of look at everything else going on in Congress and say, God, what a mess this is. I mean, the example I like to cite for people is when the bill was passed that gave uh, a performance right on the digital platforms, the internet and satellite radio platforms, it was a Republican Congress that had just voted to initiate impeachment proceedings against President Clinton when that bill was signed into law. So, the when people can't agree on much in Congress, they do want to come home with achievements and get things done, and they look to issues like this to get things done. That's kind of the first point. The second point is the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Bob Goodlatte, has indicated that he's reviewing copyright law, and he views music licensing reform as probably the low-hanging fruit of that uh, review and an area ripe for reform. And then third, the Register of Copyrights, who Congress looks to for guidance in this area, has said that this is the low-hanging fruit of copyright review and has called the AMFM uh, 
lack of an AMFM performance, royalty, and embarrassment. Uh, so there's a, a substantial amount of activity in this direction on the Hill. What has to happen now is the people who care about this issue, who create music or love music, and the people who create it have to get active and let Congress know that they support it and that there is more of there are more of them out there than there are of uh, big corporate broadcasters. And on that note, Ted Kahlo is executive director of the Music First Coalition. He joined us from his office in Washington. Thank you so much. Thank you, Portia. We're talking radio royalties on this episode of The Future of What. Stay with us. I am all in a ball in your front yard. I have this bag of hammers. And I won't ask to come in because I have sold everything. Still I have got some manners. And there's a hole in your head. Spill your thoughts on the floor. Shoes from Portland, Oregon, had a radio hit in June of 1986 with their song, I Can't Wait, reaching number two on the R&B charts and number three on the Billboard Hot 100. Let's take a listen.
Valerie Day is the singer and percussionist for New Shoes. Valerie, welcome to the future of what? Thanks, Portia. It's great to be here. So tell us, as someone with a top five hit song and a gold record, how much money do you see in performance royalties for terrestrial radio play of those songs? Nothing. Yeah. Oh. Zilch. Zilch. Nada. Nothing. Zero. Okay. So that's what we're here to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs> so the good news is that your husband, John Smith, wrote these songs. So yes. you have always gotten money from the songwriting royalties. Right. It's kind of like he's Dolly Parton and I'm Whitney Houston. <laughs> You know, like that that's the example that people use sometimes when you're talking about, like, how does publishing work? Well, Whitney Houston sang that famous song from The Bodyguard, but Dolly Parton wrote it. Right. So when it gets played on the radio, who makes the money? Dolly. Dolly. Yes. And Whitney and Dolly aren't married as far as I know, <laughs> actually. Yes. And so anyway, yeah, I've been very fortunate that John wrote that music, you know. Absolutely. So that's been a good thing. That has been a good thing for you guys. So when internet radio came on the scene, did you guys sign up for Sound Exchange right away or were you kind of skeptical? Because a lot of people were skeptical of Sound Exchange. They were like the Nigerian prince. They were like, we yes. have money for you. Right. You get that email and you think, I don't know about this. <laughs> this sounds kind of sketch. But I called them. They they sent us a couple of emails and then I called them and they were so nice and they explained it very well. And I said, okay, sign us up. So we've been, I think since 2010, we've been doing Sound Exchange. Great. And how is that going for you? It is amazing. <laughs> it really has. Um, we've probably, I don't know if you want to talk numbers here because it's kind of, I mean, it's so hard to tell uh, where these things come from. But we saw a, a little under $1,000 a month just to, to begin with for mm -hmm. the song, just in uh, U.S., um, wow. not not uh, international. And um, it's it's increasing a little bit. So I think it averages out to about $1,200 a month that we make through these performance royalties, which is the first money that I have ever made right. off of this off of this record. Since you since it was released in 1986. 1986. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Thank you 30 years later. <laughs> I know, right? The little song that could. It yeah. just keeps going. It's like one of our children that we sent out and it keeps, you know, like <laughs> and they finally it's finally sending well. back money. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> taking care of you. Um, so now can you extrapolate? I mean, that's good in terms of getting a sense of 30 years later, this song is making this much per month. Mm -hmm. But since you guys have actually gotten songwriting royalties since the beginning, since it was originally played on the radio, can you extrapolate or estimate, estimate like what you've received about how much money you missed out on in performance royalties, had there been a performance royalty wow. when your song was played on the radio? That is hard to tell. I know on terrestrial radio, as a songwriter, John makes about seven cents per play. Mm -hmm. And especially in the 80s, that was that those little cha-ching, cha-chings were, you know, coming in quite a bit. But because it has lasted so long, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, a genius at math anyway, but it <laughs> It would have added up. and yeah, it would have been significant. Then the whole international piece, because we, I mean, it was a hit in the UK, in Germany, in Italy. We still get email from fans in Bulgaria and Russia. And Wow. I mean, it's amazing how um, American culture is spread throughout the world. I mean, it is our one of our biggest imports. And the fact that we're one of three countries in the world that doesn't pay performance rights to our artists is just 
It's despicable. It's despicable. <laughs> and wrong. It is. And that's what we were speaking about with Congressman Nadler about the reciprocity. Yes. Because we are net exporters of culture in America. So, for example, your song gets played all over the place in, in foreign countries. Those countries, if you guys weren't the songwriter, all those performance royalties that, that are sitting there are just sitting in a bank for you somewhere and sitting in some collection agency. Yep. You know, luckily, because you're the songwriters, you were able to get a hold of the songwriting royalties. Yes. And that was one of the things that we actually did right. Um, <laughs> and we made mistakes, a lot of them on the way, but along the way. But um, one of them was that we created our own publishing company. So um, we have somebody administer our publishing, but we have most of the of the rights. Of course, Atlantic Records still owns the master rights to I Can't Wait. So, and that will probably, I mean, it will be our children's children's children that might see money from that because we still owe them quite a bit for the last record we made. In fact, we got a, we got a special delivery UPS, uh, uh, yesterday of like a stack of 500 sheets of paper that show how much (laughs) we made over the last year through Atlantic. And, um, we still owe them, I don't know, 225,000 or something like that. So it's, and we made, I think, against that because it's digital now. So there aren't any actual copies of the record that are selling. That's just digital downloads. The money last year, I think, was that was made was like $7,000 in digital downloads. So I don't know if you can do the math on that one, but we're never going to see any money from Atlantic. That's for sure. That is amazing to me. And I it totally want, makes me want to geek out and like get into my label hat and be like, do they cross collateralize your records? But I won't do that because people will leave in rows. <laughs> I don't want to do that. But one thing, since you bring up Atlantic, you told me a story before that I thought was really fascinating, which is you guys re-recorded your two biggest hits in 2010 and you went to put them up on iTunes, and you found out that Atlantic had never put them on iTunes. That's right. So they just missed this opportunity. They weren't even bothering to try to make money. No. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just, I think, about a year and a half ago that somebody over there went, oh, gee, I think maybe we should put this one on iTunes, you oh, know? Man. And so that's, uh, it finally was up there. But but people were emailing us and saying, you know, your second record's on iTunes. How come, told you so, how come Poolside isn't on iTunes? And we're like, your biggest record is not on iTunes. Yeah, how, I don't, we don't know, you know. And that could be just an oversight. I mean, I don't want to spend the whole day, like, slagging the majors. But right. it's also the kind of thing that makes you just, because, you know, the, the PR job that has been done in the music industry is that the majors are just evil, 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 and all they do is try to rip off artists and nickel and dime them. But then you find something like this where you're like, it's not just that they're evil. It's also that they're huge corporations and they have no idea what they're doing half exactly. the time. I think and they just over just didn't put up this best-selling yeah. album. They've got so much they don't even know what they've got. Right. You know, they're just overwhelmed with, um, you know, and so they're just trying to keep up as they're circling the drain you know like (laughs) (laughs) it must not be a very fun world that they're living in either so but uh yeah anyway it's it's crazy oh my goodness so um tell us about some of the stuff that you guys are doing now well we are actually having a blast being musicians for the first time in a really long time like full-time musicians john went into um doing commercial work and writing some scores for um movies and uh, I was teaching for 20 years and um, about a year, two years ago, we started touring again with these 80s acts. Um, 
like Lisa Lisa and Expose and uh, Stacy Q and and it's just like an '80s. I don't know, summer camp. Like, we, we feel like we should get these T-shirts that say Freestyle Explosion, 1980s, you know, uh, artists on the road. And we just have a great time with them. The audiences where we're playing are really fun. And they're all ages, too. They're young people who are just discovering the music because their parents played it when they were growing up. And then it's their parents. And so we're, we're having a blast doing that. We're making a record. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to hopefully have that out next year so that's really cool and um and we're playing um gigs with uh, our live band an eight-piece band around portland and we'll probably end up in washington and it's a little hard to take eight people on the road but of course you know we're we're uh, optimistic because well, they're just so fun to play with we can call up the decemberists and see how they do it yeah right <laughs> <laughs> so is that the New Shoes Orchestra? No, actually, um, it's just the New Shoes Band. Okay. And the New Shoes Orchestra was a grand experiment, a, a, a mashup of all the styles that John and I love. And But it was, we called it Jazz Pop Cinema. Um, but it was a little bit hard for our audiences to, from the 80s to understand, what what are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> this is weird. You know, so we never thought we'd do the 80s stuff again because we didn't want to go back in time. Right. But um, we just kept getting offers, and and the the agent that called us up this that uh, we finally said yes to said, just try it, just just go on this tour. It's stadiums, and the people love it, and you'll have a great time. And we went, well, our son's graduating from high school, let's give it a whirl. <laughs> At least we'll be you know like in different airports around the country. <laughs> yeah, you see a lot of airports. <laughs> yeah, we haven't been in airports for a long time. Oh my gosh. And uh, we've been having a blast. That so is awesome. It's a really great time in life. And is this the first time you have not had to have a day job? Yes, since the since we put the band to bed in in ninety one. Were you sort of devastated because your band was over? Yeah, we really had no idea what we were going to do next because we'd been doing the band so intensely for, first of all, seven years in clubs, um, playing up to 300 shows, 320 shows per year. I mean, like per year. It was insane. And then we got a record deal and we had a record deal for seven years. So that was 14 years of like really intense work in this band. And so I was like, okay, well, I could go back to working in a restaurant or, I mean, because this is what I'm qualified to do, right? right? <laughs> Rock star or restaurant work. I mean, there was like nothing in between. And then I thought, well, you know, actually, I've been studying voice because I got nodules uh, early on in my career. And I found a wonderful teacher. His name's Tom Blaylock. And he saved my career. And so I thought, well, I would love to be able to pass that information on to other singers who are in need and um so i i went back to him and i said can you teach me how to teach and he said sure and so that's that's how it all that's how it all started and i thought it would work well because then i could be in um i could also be a parent Mm -hmm. and i could be at home and i could get you know schedule my own hours and um the hard part uh about being musicians on the road is that if you're going to have a family especially John and I, because we were traveling together, you'd have to take your kid with you all the time. And I just could never picture doing that. You know? <laughs> and it turns out the kind of boy we had, he liked being at home anyway. <laughs> so, so it all worked out. It was, it was the perfect thing to do. Wow. And John went into scoring? Yes. He um, went into, and actually it was the perfect transition for him, because he's a really talented 
songwriter, not just in this genre of pop R&B um, dance music. Uh, so he got to do stuff for the country, um, country, uh, sorry, Cowgirl Hall of Fame Museum oh, yeah. in Texas. Yeah. Um, stuff for dance companies. So everything from classical to country to to pop. I mean, he, he really got to go across the board. So that was great for him because he got to stretch. And he did some film work, too. So cool. that was cool. That's something that a lot of musicians end up doing is is when they're not actually touring in their band or whatever songwriters often go into scoring or do uh, commercial work stuff like that yeah it seems like a viable alternative or another another income stream for a lot of people it, it can be it's gotten a little it's gotten a little harder I mean this was the early 90s and budgets were bigger for more, most corporations and so he got in at a time when he was really excited by what he could do because he could hire mini orchestras and he could do all these things. Now it's a, it's a little tighter and uh, it's just different. But every era has its good and bad points in terms of what works and what doesn't in the business, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So um, so there are people who are still, he's out of it now and very happily so. <laughs> um, it's good to be back playing music again. But um but there are people who are doing it that are just, you know, doing doing well because also they are making the music of the moment mm-hmm. that the um, people who are in charge of hiring the ads uh, are in charge of the music um, are into. So it depends on what kind of music you're making and, and how that goes. It's a little bit of a funny business, too, because sometimes people don't know about music and they're actually in charge of hiring the person and and producing. We had this. He had this. Excuse me. One. Uh, artistic director who was actually deaf who was in charge of the music for the uh, project he was working on and so that was challenging let's just put it that way (laughs) you know yeah yeah so wow now you guys have a really interesting story about how you ended up getting signed to Atlantic because you didn't it wasn't like you just made a demo or or they heard a demo and they were like oh you're the ones you actually got remixed in Europe, right? Yes. And the the first huh, it, it's such a crazy story. It's like the I can't wait um was the song that could, you know? It was like <laughs> this little engine that just kept on going. It was sort of a B minus dance floor song when we played it live because we played it too fast. <laughs> and then we made a great uh a great record thanks to Fritz Richmond who was um the engineer on the record and he made it into a single. And that record got played on Z100 by a fluke. This uh, local writer, Attilio, wrote about us and said that the record we just made was pretty good. And it's too bad that local radio uh, stations like Z100 wouldn't play it. And they read this article over the air and said, if New Shoes is listening, bring your EP on down. And luckily, our manager at the time, who was working in a bar downtown, he was up early that day and jumped on his Vespa and drove the cassette down to Z100, <sighs> and they picked I Can't Wait off the cassette and played Whoa. it. Whoa. And the phones lit up just from that first moment. And wow. so then we had some friends in the industry who helped us get I Can't Wait all over the Pacific Northwest on the top radio stations, and we couldn't get any love from any any of the big major labels they were just like ah that's a pacific northwest thing that's <laughs> that's not for real that's not the world so nothing happened this is kind of the long story sorry 
nothing happened at first, but then it got put on a 12-inch DJ record called Hot Tracks, and that went to Holland as an import, was found in a bin by Peter Slachhaus, who was a remix artist in Holland at the time. He remixed it, put it out on some Dutch label, and that record went back to New York, where it was discovered by a new guy named Bruce Carbone who worked for Atlantic Records in the dance department. And that's how we got a deal. Wow. Yeah. It's a great that story. Nutty? <laughs> I have I have a feeling that almost all stories are kind of like that though, and just like so random. Just like how did that happen? You can't write the stuff. Yeah, oh, you so can't write it. When people ask me, Well, how do you get a record deal? I'm like, Well <laughs> Don't mm, ask me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are no straight lines in this business, and yeah. that's probably partly why we like it. Yeah. Did you find when you were teaching voice that a lot of times you're, when your students figured out who you were, they would say, oh, can you help me get a record deal? <laughs> well, I think they thought that I had more of an in than I really did, you know. <laughs> but um, no, at this point, you know, I look to like uh, your average Joe or or Janet, I don't know, <laughs> as I was and teaching, and I just, I don't know, I love teaching, It I, I had such a great time with my students, and passing on the knowledge so that they could survive the rigors of being a vocalist, um, and no matter what kind of music they were doing, or, you know, because over a lifetime, hopefully you do all kinds of different things, mm-hmm. and uh, whether they were just doing it for fun, so their kids wouldn't be like, Mom, stop making sounds in the car, or um, <laughs> or whether they were playing professionally six nights a week, you know, I wanted them to be able to do what they wanted to do with their voice and have it, and have it hold up and last, so it's been a good life. That is wonderful. Yeah. It's wonderful. And that's what, you know, that's what we want for people. We want artists to be able to be artists. Yes, we do. You know? And all the all my students that, you know, I've, I've taught for 20 years. And one of the hardest things is when I have somebody who's really talented and has that drive and wants to make music their life. And it's the only thing that they can think of to do. I mean, that's how it was for me. There was just nothing else that really was going to satisfy. And I want to see these people be able to make a living doing this and not... I know so many talented musicians who just cannot really make a living and are now getting older like I am. And, you know, I'm thinking, how are they going to how are they going to survive into their 80s and, you know, and and make and make it work? And uh, I I think there's too many talented people to just um, give up on this kind of thing. And this is one of those income streams. I mean, you have to John and I always talk about the three legged stool, how you have to have you know, maybe some live gigs, you have to have a little licensing, you have to have a little publishing, you, you can make it all work, but um, you have to have all of those things. So this is another piece of the puzzle, and I'm really hopeful. Yeah, a performance, a terrestrial radio performance royalty would be a huge deal yes, it for would. a lot of people. It would, and and even for the people who aren't the, the, uh, the, the performing artists uh, that you know, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of people who play on records that you never hear about, and they would make money too. Right. The actual, the featured musicians would make money. And? And the non-featured musicians. Exactly. So it's an amazing, it would be an amazing thing for a lot of people. Yes, it would. Valerie Day is the singer and percussionist in New Shoes. Valerie, thanks so much for joining us on The Future of What. Thanks for asking me to be here, Porsche. It's been fun. Can I have a taste of your ice cream?
And that's our show. If you believe the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act is the right thing to do, I encourage you to call or write your congressperson today. The music we played today was used by permission from the artists. You heard Jeff Hansen, Hiding Behind the Moon, Tao with the Get Down, Stay Down, Bag of Hammers, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Mighty Delta Five. If you missed any of this show and you want to hear it again, we're at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. You can also find us on Facebook. Just search Future of What. Reed Harvey is our engineer. Will Watts and John Sepulvedo produce the show. Special thanks to Amy Polanski and all the folks at Digital One Studios in Portland. Send those questions to thefutureofwhatshow at gmail.com. I'm Portia Sabin. Thanks for listening. Don't be